1: What's and Hardwood Knox listeners? I'm Dan Favalli coming at you without my co-host Andrew D. Bailey. I have a very special guest and a long episode for you though coming up, so I'll try and make this intro quick. Just want to provide a quick apology that we did not put out two episodes last week. I was actually getting ready to record the second one and my laptop fell off my desk and the screen internally was all scrambled afterwards. And as you may know, All the Apple stores around the country are closed. So getting it fixed was just a non-possibility at that point. And while I do have a iMac, it was not set up. I haven't used it in years. So I went to set it up and was going to try and use that. But I then found there was a battery explosion in the keyboard. And so I had to do some things to make sure that I could get access to that. I also have a backup MacBook Pro, but it's from like 2010 or some shit like that. It just didn't have the capacity to handle a podcast recording. Fear not, though, we are back. I have commandeered a laptop from my wife. Uh, She willingly but sort of begrudgingly gave it to me, so I'll be using that for a few days. I did order another one, though, and let me tell you, I can confirm that there is nothing like that impromptu, totally unscheduled, mega-expensive laptop purchase. What a feeling that is. Enough about me, though. Our guest today is NBA player agent, Todd Ramisar. He is the founder and CEO of Life Sports Media and Entertainment. He represents clients such as Pascal Siakam of the Toronto Raptors, Kavon Looney of the Golden State Warriors, Thomas Bryant of the Washington Wizards. He also represented Baron Davis um, for quite some time. While well, well, Baron Davis was not just in the NBA, but at the peak of his career in the NBA. Hopefully people remember how damn good Baron Davis was. This conversation's wide-ranging, covers a bunch of stuff. I thought it was uh, really cool. He was generous with his time. We went almost 90 minutes, so I really hope that you enjoy this one. And I'm just going to ditch the plugs this time. Subscribe, rate, and review to us. We really appreciate it. Love you all. Hope that you are staying safe and are about ready to enjoy this conversation with NBA player agent, Todd Rabizar. Hello, Todd. Thank you so much for jumping on with me today. And as I mentioned before, we started recording. This does feel like a loaded question during these times, but how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Dan. And um, you know, overall, based on the circumstances, I appreciate you for for having me on. How are you doing?
1: Oh, I am. Relative to the circumstances, I have no complaints where where I am at. So so I I'm very happy over here. Uh To get right into it, though, I would assume that this time of year has to be, uh, I assume you do a ton of traveling in general, but I would think this time of year is supposed to be uh, pretty hectic for you when looking at your travel schedule. And so I'm wondering how the NBA stoppage, the March Madness cancellation, the the social distancing, how that sort of impacts your day-to-day responsibilities with not just current clients, but prospective clients for life, sports, media, and entertainment.
0: Yeah, it, it uh, I'm sure like a lot of other Americans, uh, it's, uh, it's changed, you know, uh, quite a bit because, uh, to your point, Dan, you know, my internal clock is, uh, saying I need to be on the road. I need to be meeting with potential clients. I need to be at, you know, uh, NCAA games or in, in some cases, living rooms if the, if the season is over. And then also, you know, uh, making sure that I'm going to the team cities that my clients are playing in to make sure that they're good prior to the what would normally be the playoffs tipping off, uh, next month. But, you know, with this COVID-19 and, um, and essentially everything, uh, being turned upside down overnight, you know, my, my roles and responsibilities are, um, I have really changed in terms of, um, you know, what I'm focusing on for my clients as well as potential clients, and uh, instead of being on the road, I've kind of, uh, you know, I've, I've hunkered down in my home office, and I'm making the majority of my calls and uh, Zoom meetings uh, from here.
1: I would assume it's, it's at least a little bit easier to remain in contact with your current clients who you've built up a longer-standing rapport with, but is it still, you know, is there is it possible to recruit during this time of year can you recruit through those you know Skype conversations or or Zoom media conversations or does that really put a, a damper on what your typical recruiting plans would be this time of year
0: no i you know for most of the uh, most of the recruiting or i should say the recruits and their families you know the relationship that i built with them is has uh, extended beyond these uh circumstances presented itself so even when I'm doing a, uh, you know, a FaceTime call or a, um, a video conference call, yes, it's not as intimate as being there in person, but in terms of being able for them to get and the recruit, to get FaceTime, it's, it's still invaluable having that technology there. Um, but the, the reality is a lot of the information is fluid. So in those meetings or conversations where I'm normally, you know, uh, You know, in addition to making the pitch on why I'm the best representative for them, there'd also be a, um, you know, following that up with, uh, you know, information that they need to know relative to uh, the pre draft process that leads into the NBA draft. But the reality is, those dates are up in the air and uh, we don't know uh, when things are going to get back to normal. I mean, for example, you know, the Portsmouth Invitational Tournament or PIT that's normally scheduled in April. We already see that it's been canceled. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, for seniors, uh, in that invitation only, uh, type tournament, they're, uh, unable to, uh, uh, that's an opportunity that they'll be able, unable to participate in where otherwise, you know, NBA personnel, scouts, general managers, and decision makers would be there evaluating them. So Um, we, we just got to kind of take it day by day. And as we get the information as representatives, that's when we disseminate the information, uh, to the clients as well as prospective, uh, prospective clients.
1: Do you see that the current circumstances changing or impacting the, the NBA draft in like this substantive way where it's not just these, you know, invitationals that are being canceled, but before the draft even happens. And like you said, all the dates are up in the air are they even going to be able to have private workouts? And so does it make it just more challenging for one preparing your clients and then just looking at the the draft process in general, even from a team's perspective and the decisions that they have to make?
0: yes. in in short, Dan, yes, absolutely it's going to impact uh, the draft. Uh, but the magnitude or the level that it will impact it, we don't know. We're almost going to have to take it week by week um, because even as a representative, um, I have to uh, listen to uh, health officials as it relates to this virus to make sure that the health and safety of of uh, you know the new clients that I'm bringing on board that I'm not putting them in harm's way in terms of increasing the likelihood of them getting infected with this with this virus. The other thing is I have to uh, you know listen and 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 make sure that I'm having conversations frequently with the the players' association as well as the NBA. Because if uh, the season, if the NBA is looking to resume two and a half months from now, um, and from everything that I can even gather now, their priority right now is uh, the NBA season and seeing when that can resume as well as their current NBA players. Um, Not to say that um, the NBA draft is not a priority for them, but it's probably at the bottom of the list of priorities that they have to address Immediately, because of uh, you know the financial implications, as well as again the health and safety of not just the players on the floor, but you know team personnel as well as league personnel uh, that's going to be impacted by this uh, by this virus as well.
1: I, I wanted to ask you more about current events, but I'll get to that a little bit later. I'm I'm really interested in sort of your career trajectory. You you played at UCLA. And I'm wondering if there was a moment where you realized that you wanted to be a sports agent or if that's something that just more gradually came about and wasn't sort of an epiphany or anything like that.
0: It it was one of those things, Dan, where it was, um, you know, I I can't say that I dreamed about being a sports agent growing up. I think I I know I always wanted to be involved in business. I, I, I wanted to own businesses. And I know I wanted to uh, provide a service. And, uh, you know, I guess growing up, I wanted to be an attorney more than anything. And I had a passion for sports. I think once I got to UCLA, which was my dream school, um, and I started playing alongside, you know, uh, 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 teammates, friends that eventually uh, would play in the NBA, that it kind of dawned on me that, hey, my my career uh, beyond college is not going to be as a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, yes, it would be great to be in the NBA, but I didn't have, uh, any aspirations to play overseas. So while at UCLA, I, I started an internship with Arn Tellham and that really exposed me, um, to, uh, you know, still, still staying close to the game, the NBA game and professional basketball, but, uh, pursuing a, a career at the time in law, uh, that I could go to law school and then still be an agent. And, uh, and that's where it really dawned on me. I would say I was around 19, uh, you know, uh, towards the end of my uh, sophomore year at UCLA that I really started focusing on that as a career path.
1: March sadness is rolling on and on and on hardwood Knox listeners with currently no NBA, NHL or MLB. You might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or you can let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. All open 24 hours a day and all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the weather. Visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. That's betonline.ag. Be sure to use our promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, BLUEWIRE, again. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Now, I obviously have no like evidence of this, but I, I feel like very few agents not only played uh, at the level you played at being at UCLA but then also being around guys like a Baron Davis like a Matt Barnes. Do you think that sort of helped with you just being able to understand how to be a better agent and and what exactly players need or what exactly they're they're going to look for in an agent?
0: No question, Dan, because at the end of the day, uh, being a player, being able to understand terminology and the psyche and and, and understand coaching dynamics and and coaching the player dynamics, as well as just understanding team chemistry and just and then also say that kind of the unwritten rules of the sport, being able to communicate and convey that and understand that while uh, representing and managing my clients has been invaluable because uh, whether speaking to my clients or speaking to a, a general manager or a coach there's uh there's that that underlying understanding that I could understand where the front office may be coming to, from in a situation understand where my my client is coming from and be able to um, you know assess the situation and then make sure that I'm addressing it appropriate appropriately for my client's best interests uh, for example but you know, even after games, clients will call me, uh, it may be a great game, it may be a, a not so great game, they may be frustrated or elated, whatever the circumstances, I'm able to kind of get into the weeds uh, of that game or that moment and, uh, and, and have a, an appreciation with them as to what that is. And, and again, I think that all uh, goes into, uh, you know, understanding the client so that I could better represent them.
1: Now, like you said, you would you worked with arm Tellum, you worked with Bill Duffy. What was it exactly that inspired you to open your own shop? You're the founder and CEO, as we've mentioned before, of life sports, media and entertainment. And I'm just wondering at what point did you decide that opening your own organization was, was the right move for you or something that you really wanted to do?
0: So, Dan, if if you follow my career trajectory after Aaron um, I think I, I was, uh, I, I was in law school. I was 22. Uh, I was no longer with R I was in crisis management and Baron Davis asked me, who was a former teammate of mine at UCLA, asked me to manage him. And by the end of that first year of law school, he asked me to represent him. And I was, uh, I was by myself. Um, I got certified And, uh, I knew a lot about the industry and had contacts, but I was really learning on the fly. Mm -hmm. And, um, I ran my own, uh, agency, uh, from 2003 till 2008. So going back on my own after, um, I left BDA wasn't anything new for me, uh, because I had had that experience. Uh, it's just that I was older, wiser, better, even, you know, have had more experience, Uh, going out and and really knowing what I wanted to build uh, as an organization. And, um, you know, I really wanted to bring, um, really integrate sports science into the agency, uh, new technology uh, that I saw that was disrupting, you know, other industries and business. And I wanted to to bring all of that uh, into an agency that was, Was going to be able to service my clients that much better, and uh, the beauty about technology, at least for me, or or in some ways, uh, the metrics uh, that are behind some of these analytics is it gave me a way to kind of remove the subjectiveness of this service oriented business and bring some, you know, uh, uh, you know, be objective through the data to uh, not only better service my clients but even uh, negotiate uh even better uh on their behalf, uh which you know I think was pretty evident uh last summer or last free agency for some of my clients
1: is do you find it at all more challenging uh, you know running an independent agency if you have to go up against some of the the bigger agencies because it does seem like just from where I'm standing that uh this your business has become i would say over the past couple of decades, I feel like more cutthroat. And I'm just wondering if there are, are challenges to now running your, when you've run your own shop, um, if you know that you're maybe competing for clients that are also looking at uh, agencies that might be bigger.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging, uh, Dan. But, uh, you know, I think whether you're in a big shop or running an independent agency, it both has its challenges. You know, for me, having bumped my heads a few times over the last, 20 years of being in this industry, I've learned a lot where it's made me that much more confident running my own shop and not, and also knowing who I'm pursuing, uh, as a client, um, uh, to know that, you know, the service that I'm provided is best suited for them. And, uh, because oftentimes we think that, uh, players, uh, select agents, uh, which they do. Uh, but in a lot of cases, I'm only pursuing clients that I feel, uh, that I'm a good fit for, for them as much as they, uh, as much as they are for me. And, uh, and that's worked well in the model, uh, over the last few years. But, you know, the only way for me to figure that out, Dan was again, just having, you know, uh, being a little bit more uh, gray and, and having the experience and of, uh, of, uh, of life to be able to identify, you know, what works and what doesn't, and then be able to embrace that challenge. And then run a successful business. But it's, it's been gratifying because, you know, for me, I, I, if I see something that needs to be adjusted or changed within the business, then I could quickly do that opposed to having to run it up a flagpole or, or, uh, or, or, or just have to wait. Right. Because I'm not as patient as I am. I'm very impatient (laughs) when it comes to representing my guys, because if there's an opportunity or something that could be addressed for them, uh, you know. I, I, I want to pursue that as quickly as possible and put that into place. And that's what's worked well for me being independent.
1: Now, I'm, I'm sure there's not like a cookie cutter process that goes into it, but I, I do feel like people maybe don't understand how much work goes into developing relationships with new clients before maybe you actually sign them. And I'm wondering if you can give us a, a peek behind the curtain as to what that may entail if you're just starting from, from scratch, you know, how you might first, um, like you said, you, you look at players and maybe, uh, target some that you think would be a good fit for you. And I'm just wondering what happens from there. Like, what are the steps you try and take to develop a relationship with them?
0: Yeah. Well, let me start with this, Dan. I'm a, in it, in it, uh, just something I believe in overall in life. Talk is cheap, right? (laughs) right? Especially in this business where it's so competitive and if the player's talented and, and someone I want to work with, it's fair to say that other agents uh, you know big and small are pursuing that same player and their family. So for me, knowing that talk is cheap and that in some ways some things may, may sound very similar between the agents or agencies is 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 backing it up with action, right
1: mm-hmm.
0: and consistency. Because um, I think I always say you can't manufacture relationships overnight, which if you can't manufacture a relationship, that means you can't manufacture trust overnight. It takes time. And and over the course of time, for me, it's just about building that relationship, having conversations, finding out more information, you know, uh, not just about the player, but their family. You know, what what is the players, you know, hopes and aspirations for their career and then also sharing with them because I want my clients to feel a part of something special, part of a family uh, in terms of this business. I also share a lot of information about me personally, my career path, my own family, and um, and, and then also just stories about other clients that, that could resonate with them. Um, because I think – actually, I know this is, in most cases – the only time a family will go through this process for their son, or a, or or a, a child, and it's nerve-wracking because mm-hmm. here here it is that you're entrusting an, a representative, an agent, or an individual with uh, you know with with their son to essentially manage their career that could equate to tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, which is going to impact not only just their son but if done right impact generations of that lineage of of a family and that's not something that should be taken lightly so and I and it's not something that I take lightly so in building that relationship it's really educating them and as I say it's spoon-feeding information that's accurate and you know for me my approach is I don't I don't sugarcoat things and I don't um and and I don't a- exaggerate uh, on information. I like having everything backed up with facts and, and, uh, and data and just, uh, being really consistent, uh, in the process to, to build that trust. And then hopefully at the end, they, uh, they choose myself and the agency as their representative.
1: Now is initially building that relationship, the hardest part of recruiting new clients? Is it maybe a, one of the situations where you perhaps you put in all that that work and then you don't sign the client or is it is it something else about the process that's difficult?
0: <laughs> oh Dan, I used I, you know, starting off in the business, like the taking the no's or the rejection was so hard. But I tell you, for me over the years I've built I've built a callus uh for the rejection or I'm like <laughs> uh, Colonel Sanders, you know, the the thousand no's before you get a before you get a yes. You know, for me it's just you know, I don't take it personal. I think there was a point where i used to because um, I think what's helped me out too is, is also not just a life experience, but being a parent is being sensitive that these parents or individuals are making a very, very tough decision in the moment and they have to, they're making a decision on what they feel is, is in their best interest. And it's very hard sometimes again, because you can't manufacture trust or or relationships overnight is it could become overwhelming uh for these uh families or even these uh these individuals that are young making the decision on who their representative is because they don't know in in some cases they don't know what they don't know mm-hmm. you know they may not know the right questions to ask they may not know what's important and um and and may and sometimes which you could see by the turnover of, of, of athletes to agents, sometimes they make decisions uh, based on, uh, you know, on information that may not be important to them or, or may not be important or in their best interest at that moment or in the long term. I shouldn't say in that moment, but maybe over the course of their career. Mm-hmm. And by the time they realize that, because experience is the best teacher, that's when there's sometimes a change. So for me, bringing it back to me is I always say I'm supposed to get who I'm supposed to get. Like i I'm, I'm uh, I go after and pursue the clients that I want. Like I said, I'm I'm always going to be honest and and straightforward and 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 obviously point to, you know, my career path as well as uh, you know the success I've had over my career. My which is again evident from my client success, both on and off the court. And at the end of the day, I'm supposed to get who I'm supposed to get, and and then we're off from there uh, once I am signing a, a new client.
1: Just hearing all this and the process that goes into r- recruiting clients, we I mentioned this before, but your travel schedule in a normal year has to be absurd. And so I'm wondering, one – what a normal week looks like. And two, I'm assuming you mentioned to me that you have four kids. You have to have an incredibly understanding spouse to (laughs) what would be on the road for what feels like forever.
0: Yeah, no, my, my wife definitely holds the house down, especially with, um, you know, our oldest is a freshman in high school and our youngest is six months. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it gets pretty crazy, especially during times like this, but we wouldn't trade it for the world, but under, even, even despite having four kids and, and my family is I'm on the road, uh, you know, probably weekly, especially after the new year. And, uh, depending on what's going on, uh, you know, prior to this, uh, crisis, uh, uh, in the, in the circumstances, I was in, um, three cities in four days, wow. or excuse me, four cities in three days,
1: wow. you
0: know, yeah, just because in, a, in, look, you become an expert, uh, travel planner. Um, so I'm hitting cities since I'm on the West coast going East, I'm, I'm probably hitting cities that are all in the same region. At least I plan it that way. Um, so I could be very efficient, uh, with the time and even factoring in potential travel delays and everything else. And then, you know, my travels, I got to, I have a significant uh, international practice that takes me overseas as well. So I was in Serbia at the beginning of uh, February to go see two clients of mine in Belgrade. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm in Africa now because of Pascal, uh, Siakam in the camps and uh, philanthropy we're doing there. And so, um, you know, my busy period is usually, Um, is usually the new year all the way through uh, July because of, um, you know, recruiting, uh, client maintenance, playoffs, draft, free agency. And then it calms down a little bit before the cycle begins or starts to ramp up all over again. But as a business owner, I could tell you this, Dan, it's like I wear two hats. One is my agent hat where I'm in full agent mode. The other one is in (laughs) planning mode as a business owner. And usually the business hat is is full time, um, you know. Usually in August, towards the end of the year, uh, planning for the new year.
1: Is it more challenging, you know, travel aside, re- recruiting uh, players overseas, or even maybe negotiating contracts for players who are looking to play overseas? I'm a- I'm also even wondering if you're recruiting uh, a new client who's overseas, do you meet any like an inherent Skepticism, because I feel like maybe there's there's that ingrained into every initial meeting with an agent, because they might be viewed differently in the public.
0: Um, not necessarily, Dan, and and that's where I give a credit to my team, uh, or I should say my my teammates within the company, because I have my counterparts overseas that really help manage uh, the practice overseas as well. Whether it's an international talent that we're bringing here. To the u.s to play in the nba or it's american uh, talent that we have that we're sending to an international market so uh you know the the having having an office over in europe that's run by europeans or international uh agents is extremely helpful because at the end of the day it's understanding culture in business which is essential also You know, sometimes it's challenging as time zones, depending on Mm -hmm. what part of the world, if there's an emergency or something needs to be addressed very quickly, you know, having that office and and having, again, teammates that I could count on uh, within the firm uh, to address that has been invaluable, but it also works out great having that tandem because, if a player is playing overseas, that NBA teams may have interest in bringing over to their uh, to their uh, organization in the off season. Being able to understand the you know the the calendar, the rules, and everything else, it helps us negotiate better contracts on behalf of our guys. Because in some ways, we could see see around corners in terms of what's coming up both knowing the client intimately as well as understanding the rules overseas as well as what's going on here domestically in the NBA.
1: The the thing that's always fascinated me more about an agent's responsibility is I, I think you called it client maintenance uh, because what's going to make the headlines is maybe the initial time that the player joins the agency and then any contracts for the NBA or another league that he negotiates – Thereafter, what what else is going on there? Because you you, as you said, it was client maintenance. What does that exactly entail aside from these contract negotiations?
0: Oh, it's uh, it's everything under the sun, Dan. Because you know, at least for me, this we always say business. Yes, it is a business. The meat and potatoes of this business, from my perspective as an agent, is. Negotiating the best contracts on behalf of our clients, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and sometimes that's relative, it's, and it's all a matter of perspective on on what's what's the best or or, or, or greatest contract for that individual. Uh, but for the most parts, we know in the industry what's good and what's what's not great. But aside from that, it's at least for me, it's it's everything that leads up to those moments of negotiation or those contracts. And, and at the core of that is, is really educating, educating my clients on the business side, right. To get them, um, you know, get them prepared for uh, free agency or to educate them on their brand in brand building and marketing Mm -hmm. as it relates to, uh, you know, putting different uh, endorsement opportunities in front of them that are helping build their brand. And then also part of that I, is also uh, philanthropy. You know, what are they doing in their team city or in their community, or in some cases even on a on a global scale as it relates to building their brand. But on as it, specific to what you're saying on the maintenance side is it's very personal, and that's why I say for me, as much as this is a business, it's a very very personal business where you better know your client because, you know. Like even in times like this, Dan, we're talking about like social distancing or self-isolation. These are young men. And in some cases, their families may be away from them. Right. And I want to make sure that they're, they're mentally healthy during this time because it could be extremely lonely. You know, let alone in a regular NBA season, it could be lonely if they don't have family or a roommate with them and they're early, you know, young in their careers. So it's just talking to my clients frequently, you know, what are they up to? How are their families doing? You know, uh, giving them, uh, again, spoon feeding information where uh, it's educating them. So when they do come uh, to that moment of, say, buying a house or making a major decision, a car purchase or, um, you know, uh, making plans for the off season, it's really about, for me, being proactive, opposed to reactive, uh, really speaking to them to educate them along the way so that they're making informed decisions, not just professionally, but personally, uh, that could impact them on the court or their business uh, on and off the court.
1: I I had re-listened to uh, the Full 48 podcast before we did this that you did with uh, Howard Beck, and you had mentioned... Also making sure like to put that a uh, support system that's larger than yourself around them. And I'm wondering yeah. what, what that some aspects of that include.
0: It's it's really just lines of communication. You know, family is extremely important. That's the backbone of, of all my clients uh, is their family. So having conversations with them. It's also my internal team. Um, you know, it might be my client uh, relations director. Uh, director speaking uh, to a client, building their own relationship and getting information that otherwise I may not have in that moment so that when we're getting on our company calls and we're discussing that client, that we could uh, disseminate information and share it so that we could best uh, represent the client or, or address something uh, before it becomes an issue for that client. And, and again, it's, that's a lot of that, Dan, is just experience over time, being able to see around corners, even before our clients know what's coming. Because mm-hmm. again, they're still, they're still young, like they're, they're still figuring out who they are getting comfortable in their skin. You know, we see them, uh, you know, on the court performing at a high level, but off the court, there's, you know, they're still, you know, figuring out what they like or what they dislike. So in terms of like, really uh, you know, uh, you know, tr- uh, entrusting on that, on that team or, or, uh, around those clients, uh, around the clients, it's everything from the business aspect, from business managers to financial advisors, uh, and myself, as well as our agency. Um, but also family, you know, and family could be, you know, parents, it could be wives, it could be girlfriends or best friends. That are roommates, just keeping those lines of communication open so that we could best service uh, the client uh, in their best interests.
1: Does that put, do you feel like extra pressure having to be responsible for all that? Or is it something that you just get used to since you've been in the business now for two plus decades?
0: No, it's just, it, you know, my entry point, it, it to answer your question in short, no, it's not, because my entry point into this business. You know, when I was representing Barron, we were the same age. We were, we were same class going into UCLA. So my lens uh, that I look in perspective on this business is always player client centric. Mm-hmm. And I am, and it's probably because I'm a former player. I just know how important uh, those little details are for those bigger moments uh, that the client is going to see in their career. And um, and I think that that is just as important as uh, the business, you know, on the court, because and and, and Dan, that's what went into um, why I named my agency Life, because I always said, you know, how the players what's going on in a player's life off the court will impact their performance on the court mm-hmm. and their performance on the court. If they have a bad game or a bad loss or, you know, something's going on on the court, you better believe it's going to impact their life off the court, and uh, it's not—they're not separate. And understanding that, at least for me as an agent, and being able to communicate to my client and kind of pinpoint, you know, the things that could be uh, not working for them or the things that are working for them, has helped me to better represent them and also position them again to maximize uh, their earning potential in their career. Both from a team perspective as well as you know uh, marketing and endorsement opportunities off the court
1: so what was it like uh, representing Baron Davis when you guys are roughly the same age and for anyone who might not just remember uh Baron Davis was incredibly good if you if you search him on YouTube and some of his highlights, there are times where he'll take off and you just don't know if he's going to come down. He was so he was just so good. And so I'm just wondering what that experience was like, particularly when you were still so young yourself at the time,
0: it was, it was learning on the fly. It was, um, it was a partnership and it was an amazing partnership because the beauty of it was, there's just an ultimate trust amongst uh, friends. And, and for me, and I think Baron will attest to it. I did not take uh, being in that position lightly, that was a lot of pressure because for me, having, you know, a friend entrust me with that great responsibility at 22, 23 years old, when he's at, you know, really going into the prime of his career, he was an all star there in 2004 already and on a max contract. It was, uh, something where I didn't want to disappoint him more, more than anything. And I wanted to be, uh, yes, I had, uh, my own aspirations, uh, as an agent in terms of wanting to build this company, but because he gave me that responsibility, it was like, I I wanted to, I wanted to do the best contracts. I wanted to, uh, you know, position, uh, you know, help contribute, uh, to position, uh, him, uh, in, in terms of, uh, life after basketball, or even opportunities off the court. And and it was an amazing journey, uh, just going through that uh with him because we did things that were uh that were groundbreaking uh in terms of, you know, uh not just the deals on the court, but like, you know, deals with glass of vitamin water before they were acquired by Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm you know, doing deals with Jenny Craig, uh, we were in China, uh, before anybody else was, uh, did a leaning deal. That was, uh, the biggest deal at the time for an American player. There was, there was just a ton of things that we did that were just, uh, uh great. And in hindsight, looking back, it, I really scratched my head. and was like, wow, you know, I'm almost, you know, kind of trying to separate myself from being that person saying, you know what we did, we did some great things back then.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, but in, in, in those experiences, uh, because they weren't all perfect either, Dan, that's that's the beauty about this is like really learning from the things that maybe could have been better and now applying that to my clients like Pascal or Thomas Brine or Kavon Looney in uh, re- regardless of what that may be. Uh, because in this business, there's a lot of moving parts that we do have to juggle as representatives. And I think um, it, being able to address uh, certain things that could get uh, thrown at us that are unforeseen, similar to what we're dealing with now with this crisis, and being able to reassure the client or be there for them uh, in, in whatever the case may call for, I think is, is, is invaluable in terms of uh, being able to represent them at a high level.
1: Uh, one of the moving parts that, that you mentioned, preparing players, I guess, we call it for the post-career transition. Uh, when exactly does that become a focus? Is it a focus throughout? What what might be going into that process? Uh, I know you've, you know, Baron Davis, obviously, but also Ryan Hollins went through that as well. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just curious what goes into to that process.
0: It's unique to every client, Dan. And, and again, that's where getting to really know the client is, uh, is really invaluable as it relates to, uh, life after basketball and life after basketball, like, uh, it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat complex because it's not, when we think of life after basketball, sometimes we're thinking just their career after basketball. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, like these guys are hitting grand slams, financially if it's done well during their career. And for me, the life after basketball starts with making sure they're with the proper, you know, tax advisors, CPAs, business managers, financial advisors, because at the end of their career, they should have so much money saved and working for them that they in some ways can almost take their time as to what they want to do next professionally in terms of what they want to show up for. Um, and so that starts immediate, but in terms of, you know, what they want to pursue, you know, like in Baron's case, it was entertainment. It was, um, you know, um, being a business owner, you know, Baron has his hands on a lot of things, whereas Ryan Hollins, he wanted to go into broadcasting you know, really focusing on that, I would say started to happen after their rookie contract, because for wow. me, again, as a representative, when you think about uh, financially, what the players are making annually, I tease them <laughs> at times and I say, guys, you know, where, where can you uh, make 20, you know, now uh, it's all obviously relative to the generation, but you know, back then with Barron, it's like, where, where, where can you make 15 to 18 million a year and have no overhead? Right. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe you could, uh, you know, we're seeing those numbers now, at least in football with some of these guys like Tony Romo or, or guys like that, that are in the booth. But, it, you, know, you know, for the most part, it's very difficult to duplicate that financial earning power. So what I tell my guys is like, look, your your first four years or your rookie, your, your early uh, uh, days in your career, focus on basketball, focus on being the best player that you could be, be on a trajectory where in, in your NBA career where uh, or professional uh, playing career where you've built a reputation of just taking care of business on the court that nothing will take precedence over that because that's what's going to carry you from the very beginning to the end of your playing career. And if you stay on top of your health and everything else, that's where special things happen, where you're playing 10-plus years in the NBA. You've you've earned, in this case, in these days, several hundred million dollars, and you're fine and your family's fine financially to where now, if you want to be in broadcast you want to be on a coaching staff, you want to be in a front office, or you want to be a business owner that you could really enjoy it or or kind of test different things out to really see what you want to pursue. But it's all circumstantial. Ryan Hollins, we really got going during the, the lockout in 2011. Okay. I made a call up to the, you know, Ryan did uh, the School of Broadcast through the the Players Association. That was a a four day intense seminar up at Syracuse School of Broadcast, and um, he was there. He got some great B roll, the the eleven lockout hit, and I called Fox because we're both Bruins, and uh, got him doing UCLA basketball games, and then uh, to Ryan, you know Ryan's credit, he put in the work, he took that, leveraged it, and then now we see that. You know, he was off to the races and, and made a smooth transition after his playing career where he, you know, is doing ESPN and, and, and doing some other uh, telecasts where, you know, he's, uh, he's grounded in, in what he's doing beyond his playing, uh, his NBA playing career. So if, if I could do that or do, du- I guess you could say duplicate that for every client based on what their, uh, interest is, then that's, that's, that's a special moment for me and and extremely gratifying.
1: It is really incredible to see how much legwork goes into it before it ever happens Too, like from just my outside perspective. That's just amazing to hear.
0: Yeah. And and Dan, I tell you, that's uh, a lot of times. uh, And I, and I, again, I want to give credit to some of my other peers in the industry as agents. A lot of times, like I said, the unfortunate thing is uh, when people hear agent, at least, uh, across the board, there's this negative connotation to it. But when it's done right, uh, and there is an art to it, um, special things do happen because we're guiding our clients and their families in so many ways that people won't even believe. And and it's not just, like I said, their contracts on the court with the NBA teams or interviews or PR or Community relations, things like that there's so many other things that we're you know at least for me i'm I'm kind of molding advising and and getting them with uh the right contacts to help you know in a, in a lot of ways their dreams become a
1: reality uh I'd be remiss if I didn't say this uh social media can be a gift and a curse, but Baron Davis has to make the list of players who I wish. Uh, whose primes intersected with the rise of social media, because it seems like having that line to him would be surreal on a more consistent basis. Even just things in the past few years, I remember there was the video of he and Paul Pierce just cracking up at, at dad jokes was hysterical. And so he's one of those players that I wish, uh, you know, in insofar as social media is actually a good thing, that I wish his prime would have intersected with, with Twitter and TikTok, whatever everyone's using now.
0: He was always ahead of his, it, to your point, Dan, you're right. I would have loved to see it because Barron's always been ahead of his time. Even going back to our teenage years, he's always had the foresight to, uh, you know, see what's trending or what's coming and, um, and hasn't been afraid to kind of take that leap to just be creative and just do it. And in a lot of ways, he's been a trailblazer for a lot of, uh, other players in the NBA. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe at the time people are seeing him like, wow, this guy is is far out with what he's doing. But I mean, he, he you know, from, you know, his dress, you know, at the time, you know, after uh, David Stern had implemented the dress code, Baron was one. it was one of the first, if not the first to really, you know, be stylish beyond just wearing a suit and tie,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, at games or on uh, uh, during interviews or you know the infam his infamous beard you know yeah. really uh, started a trend for other players with their facial hair and things like that at least in the modern era and um he he's continuing to do that in his uh his post playing career where um again he's being a trailblazer in uh is in a, in a, in his investments and in his activity in technology and other sectors of business
1: uh, in Pascal Siakam's case he he wasn't really on the national radar at New Mexico state. And I'm wondering how he came onto your radar.
0: Uh, I, that goes back to being able to identify talent because I played the game. I mean, the talent was always there. uh, Dan, to be honest with you, like so many other players, it's just a a matter of being able to identify it, look at the circumstances they're in. And in my case, envision a player like Pascal under my watchful eye and the agency's watchful eye to put the best resources around him to have him take advantage of them and you know have his game evolve and turn into you know what he's at you know the player that he is uh now and um there's a lot there's other factors that play into not just the talent Dan but like you know, all the stars were aligned. I, I credit the Raptors, him going there. Um, they have a phenomenal organization. You know, front office led by Masai, um, who's all, also from the, you know, also from Africa. Uh, although Masai is from Nigeria and Pascal from Cameroon, mm-hmm. there was that level of comfortability uh, there for Pascal and even for us uh, by having him drafted there. Uh, they also had an international locker room uh, that was invaluable in the fact that they're the nba's only international city so all of those things in addition to what we uh you know put in place in uh, the off season you know rico hines was my teammate at ucla we were freshmen together graduated he's always done player development uh you know for my guys and and the the proof is there from you know baron davis to trevor reza and uh you know, Ryan Hollins and, and now Pascal and Thomas Bryan and Kevon Looney, like Rico's always done a phenomenal job. And like I said, it's, it's one thing to identify the talent or for a player to have talent. It's another thing for them to end up with an organization or with representation that could help develop and foster that talent uh, so that um, that player is continuing to get better over the course of their career. And that's and that's uh, you know that doesn't necessarily happen all the time.
1: Even knowing you envisioned uh, Pascal Siakam doing so well in the NBA, are you at all taken aback by just how quick the progression has been? It seems like in his second year, it even it even seems like the NBA, I'll call them nerds, didn't really come on to him until uh, ESPN Zach Lowe started mentioning how interesting he was, and then by year no. three, he's like the second best player. Uh, or he's Kyle Lunders' most important running mate on a championship team, and now he was a fringe. He was an MVP candidate for most of this year.
0: No, it's not surprising one bit, Dan. I mean, I, I literally the first day he was in the gym. Uh, I think I, I mentioned this before. You know, Rico Hines walks over after he worked him out. Said, Todd, what do you think? I said, You know, he has a chance to be a perennial All Star and a max player. And I say, and the only reason I say he has a chance. Was I was just really getting to know Pascal, because again, talk is cheap. He's -hmm. saying all the right things. He has a clear vision. He had a clear vision for what he wanted his career to be. But what had yet to be seen over time is would he put in the work consistently, and he has put in the work. So you know, when you have all that that's aligned, it, it was like I said, it was it was easy to see the talent. It was just a matter of getting him the right resources and then him taking advantage of it, which is all to Pascal's credit. Him wanting that and, and, uh, and seeing it through. But it was no surprise. If, if anything was a surprise, is them uh, in, is seeing the Raptors win a championship or Pascal winning a championship in his third year. if if I'm being honest, I didn't envision that so soon. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say I didn't see the Raptors as a championship organization because they were even prior to the championship. It was just a matter of, uh, of having uh, all the right pieces come together and, and young guys, you know, really stepping up like Pascal or Fred. But if anything was a surprise, it would be the championship after his third year, but not his performance on the court. And, and, I'll even say this, like, um, there's still, he's just scratching the surface. There's still, there's still more that I see and more that we talk through and have conversations about, um, uh, in terms of his uh, career progression.
1: It, it, it even still seems like after him winning a championship, after all the Raptors have done this season, which I I might argue is more impressive than what happened last year. And they're, you know, covering the league nationally, there's. I, I've always become like emotionally attached to one or two teams, and, and the Raptors and Thunder have been it this year. They've been just an absolute joy to watch. And it still seems like people are sort of stumbling on to how good Pascal Siakam not only is but can be, where people, maybe if they're not regular Raptors watchers, are like, whoa, this guy can run pick and roll. He can score off the dribble. Look at how much responsibility he's able to shoulder on the defensive end. And it's I still also think there's a little bit, of players entering the league that stigma where they don't have a I know I know the NBA is geared towards more positionless basketball now but if you can't map out a clear role for a player coming in I think there was even a little bit of that with Zion Williamson this past year and I still find it I don't know what the word would be there it's it's bizarre to me with what we know about how valuable versatility has become in the NBA that players like this still, when they first enter the league, seem like they're going up against that initial stigma.
0: Yeah, and Dan, you're saying more about the the stigma in terms of their versatility or in terms of their development?
1: Uh, I, I think it might just be both, where it seems like people still want to put them into a, like, a specific role and be like, we know he can do this, and they don't want, if they don't have that defined. Yeah,
0: yeah. so no, th- you bring up a good point. Dan, so the way I look at it and we, and we could, uh, we could focus on Pascal, but also go outside of Pascal is the first thing is, and I don't, and I can't pinpoint why this is, but players get better, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like just plain and simple players get better and it's like young players become veteran players and their and veteran players aren't the same players as when they were young players and and experience is the best teacher so it shouldn't surprise people that pascal is better this year than he was last year and the reason being is because he's won a championship and if you go back and watch watch the playoffs it wasn't a perfect Uh, you know, a a perfect playoffs for Pascal. He had his moments where he struggled. Right. But he was in his third season and his minutes had just increased from his second year and his role had increased substantially. But you see that and you see that, you know, as he's going through these learning moments that he adapted to then win a championship. I mean, game six in Golden State, look at his performance. You could say he hit the game when he shot on Draymond to really close out that series and for them to win a championship. So his, you know, and it's not just Pascal, look at Fred's development, look at Norman's development, look Mm -hmm. at OG's development. Those guys have gotten better. And the other thing is, and I mentioned this on, uh, you referred to Beck's podcast. I mentioned this to Howard is like, you know, winners have to be taught how to win right? Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm a firm believer in this, in just, in just the NBA or pro sports is even when guys have winning in their DNA at this level, they have to be show like somebody needs to hold their hand and show them how to get to the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, LeBron, I, I, I mentioned it before. He had to go to Miami, learn from Dwayne Wade and Pat Riley, you know, some guys are fortunate enough to be drafted into situations where there's winners. Tim Duncan, David Robinson, and Pop, right? Mm-hmm. Kawhi Leonard had Tim Duncan there in that culture. You know, Kobe Bryant had, you know, Jerry West, Dr. Bus, you know, Magic Johnson. Even though Magic wasn't playing, he was there in L.A. to help mentor. So, you know, and Kevin Durant went to Golden State. Right. So, my my point in saying that is Pascal was fortunate enough to be with a championship organization where he was drafted to a team that had two really good veterans in Kyle and DeMar, a good locker room, and a championship front office, right? Mm-hmm. And then he had Dwayne Casey, right? Well, it didn't work out with Dwayne, and they brought in Nick. And, you know, we all know DeMar was traded, and they brought in uh, Kawhi. Well, remember, we know Kawhi's pedigree. He comes there, leads those guys, and show, shows them not just in winning a championship, every day in practice what it is to be great, and then those guys win a championship. So even though Kawhi is left, that mark that he's left on that team and all those players, specifically Pascal, is something that can never be taken away. That's why he's playing better because – He's seen it done at a high level from a veteran that's now won multiple championships. In some ways, there's a formula to this. So, you know, it kind of ties in, Dan, like this, for me, this league, yes, you need to have talent, but if you've gotten into the league, you have the talent. It's just a matter of who's developing the talent and then what's the culture of the organization that these guys are with, you know, because, if there if a talented player gets drafted to a locker room that does not have a winning culture the same way i'm saying winning is contagious the same way losing is those guys pick up losing habits and again bringing it back full circle to pascal he's all he's only learned winning habits because of the organization he was drafted to you know everything that we've uh that that we've done as a as representation and also you know um just the experiences that he's had in terms of winning at a high level to uh, to to have him be in the position that he's in now.
1: That's something that players in general would pay attention to, right? Just looking at the culture of a team, I think there's this conception within some circles that the way a team is governed or stuff that happens behind the scene maybe doesn't matter as much when factoring in, let's say, free agency decisions. But is that something that you're trying to emphasize to your clients, or is it something that yeah. players just inherently all, already are paying attention to?
0: No, I, I, some maybe are fortunate enough because they may be second generation NBA players. Maybe maybe Steph was because of Dell. Maybe Clay was because of Michael. You know, maybe Kobe was because of his father um, at the time. Uh, but if a player's not a second generation NBA player, or you know, maybe the younger sibling of a NBA player, they don't know what they don't know. And neither do their families because they may not know the track record of an organization like intimately to really know what matters and doesn't. And, and when I say intimately is, uh, for example, if you were there in the 2000s with Golden State where they were on a playoff drought, you would say, okay, they're, they're not a winning organization, right? Even despite mm-hmm. Barron and, and uh, the We Believe Warriors uh, going to the playoffs, they, they went back into a drought. It was short-lived. Um, uh, but they changed ownership. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, we have a dynasty. Well, it's, it's still the same, same, you know, team name, the warriors, but the organization, the culture is different because of the new ownership. Meanwhile, you could have same ownership and a change in the front office or whatever the case may be. But if you haven't cut out that losing culture, like really killed it then it doesn't matter who's the fr- in the front office or who the coach is it's it's always it, they're never going to get to the ultimate um uh, you know the ultimate level of being a champion so for me as a, a as an agent i talk and educate my guys and try to point things out to them so that they could see the correlation between winning and losing as it relates to not only just the organization but also their their habits off the court, and uh, for me, a lot of that gets established in the off season. But Dan, you, you bring up you bring up an interesting point. You know what I what I see a lot of times with organizations is they'll have the number one pick. They'll say have obviously there's a correlation between um, a losing record and getting the number one pick. And in this year, Golden State is an exception, right? Mm-hmm. The, potentially if they get it because uh, of their circumstances. But in a lot of cases, you'll see a, a, a organization that consistently has losing seasons get the number one pick, and there's a phenomenal talent there for them to pick, right? Right. And what happens is they grab that talent, and what I see the mistake is is I say they give the keys to the franchise to that talent before that player – has learned how to win or to lead. So it's it's unnecessary pressure on that player to lead a team to winning at a high level when there's no one there to show them how to win. And and that's where things just don't work out for that player, right? right. Uh, I guess an example I could give in, uh, is like, you know, Cleveland, LeBron leaves, goes to Miami. A few seasons later, while LeBron's in Miami, Kyrie Irving's there. Phenomenal talent. But it wasn't until LeBron comes back and people could say, "Well, you know, Todd, what are you talking about, it's LeBron James?" But <laughs> it it's still the fact, you know, Cleveland had to go up still against Golden State. That was a phenomenal team, but uh, Kyrie had to learn how to win from LeBron, right? Right. Because in most of those scenarios that I'm mentioning, I'm 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 pointing to th- those young players don't have veteran players there to show them how to win. And and those veteran players don't necessarily have to be superstars. It's just veteran players to really show them, you know, keep order in a locker room, kind of guide and mentor those young players and keep them in check opposed to those players kind of being off to, on their own without the guidance of a of a like I said a veteran player in their locker room. And in you know, you look at a team like Atlanta the fact that Travis Slank brought in, you know they have uh, Vince Carter there. I'm sure Vince has been, uh, you know, helpful for
1: you know their young.
0: Yeah, I mean twenty over twenty years in this in this game at the level that he's played, he's seen a lot, and uh, and you know how they say the the adage is at least for my kids, it it takes a village to raise a child. I, I think there, that's no different when we're talking about these players as it relates to the NBA community. It's the same thing.
1: It's also for those younger players got to be important to know that they're on an organization that not only has that emotional support for them, but we are also let them play through the developmental curve because there's obviously going to be mistakes. And there are some teams that I, you know, will put their youngsters maybe on a shorter uh, leash than others. And that's got to be a tough situation to navigate if you're just trying to get started in the NBA.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a balance. You know, you, you it's got to be balanced. You don't you don't want. I don't think you don't want a player to play through too many mistakes because then who's holding them accountable too? Right?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. In
0: terms of understanding the repercussions of those mistakes if they're happening over and over again. But um, at the same token, you don't want a player looking over his shoulder like, God, am I gonna get pulled out of this game? Yeah. Like, and that's why I said there's, um, there's unwritten rules to this game. It's like, if I'm in a, if I have a young, talented player that's in a, that's in a high level situation, say the playoffs, and he's a very good defender and, um, you know, uh, the game is down to the wire. Well, I've always grown up with coaches. You have your best players on the floor in those situations, like, because you don't want to pull a young player out of that situation and have him not finish the game in a tight situation, even if he's not playing great, but he's doing on the offensive end, but he's doing well on the defensive end, because that could kill a young player's confidence too. Yeah. If you're seeing that player transition into greatness at some point, right? Amongst those veterans. So it's, it's again, it's a balancing act. There's a lot of psychology, I think, behind it. Um, And nothing is foolproof, but at least for me, and uh, I think it's it's, it's analyzing it and then having conversations with the players as well as the team to kind of go through those different scenarios and making sure that, uh, you know, the players are developing not, you know, not just physically and skill wise, but mentally uh, they're getting stronger on the court uh, so that next time they're in those positions that they could perform at a high level.
1: I have just a couple more before I promise uh, to stop holding you hostage. Uh, <laughs> I'm already hostage in my own house. Man. I mean,
0: you're not. You can't. You can't uh, hold me hostage if I'm already a hostage.
1: I know th- this is probably another one that's going to be case specific, but what's the process like for you leading into a player's free agency or a player who is maybe in the rumor mill ahead of the trade deadline?
0: Okay, for me, there are they're, um, they're two different scenarios, right? But at the core, again, is just education and being proactive opposed to reactive. So when a player's name is being brought up in, in a trade scenario, it's just making sure the player is aware that their name is getting seriously discussed. Because around the trade deadline or as it approaches, it's, it's a lot of rumors And a lot of hearsay, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody's name is getting thrown, uh, you know, thrown into the trade uh, trade talks. And there's very, I say, there's very few players that are uh, expendable to their teams, right? You know, LeBron being one of them. You're, you know, so it's usually your one percent or your one percent of the league. Everybody else could be traded at any given time. That's that's my philosophy and outlook on it. But for my players, it's like. It's explaining it to them, but and that really educating them as to the why because, or even if a player is about to be waived, because what I don't want is for that to be a shot at their confidence. Yeah. Because when you think about uh, you know, it, and again, it's circumstantial. If a player's been with the team all their career and they're still early in their career. And they're getting traded for that team. Now all of a sudden I don't want them thinking, they may not say it to me, but I don't want them thinking that, hey, I'm not good enough. That's why they traded me. Or um if they're waived, like uh, it's it's the end of the road if they're if the players, you know, towards the latter part of their career. It could be a blow to their confidence. So for me, it's educating them as to look, it was if they're waived, it was a decision by the deadline because it gives us flexibility as a free agent to sign with any team opposed to that team trying to make something work out in terms of the numbers on a trade.
1: And it it has to be super important to have someone like you in their ear just because you're looking at, and I'll be guilty of this too, when you're discussing the rumors or potential packages, these names are just getting thrown around and there's not a lot of consideration given to that. You know, they could, they could see this, and this is their actual life. If you get traded, you have to you have to move and all that. And so, I feel like that has to be for you to for to, to make sure that their confidence doesn't get uh, torpedoed, or just to make sure that their spirits r- remain up in general. That has to be important during that time of year.
0: Yeah, it's 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 very it's very important. I mean, that's that's everything, and and people tend to forget too. It's like you know these depending on where these guys are at in their career and who they are they, they may be married or, or have kids and family that are nearby. So a trade, you know, I, 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 tell people like you put yourself in their shoes or look at the circumstances based on, based on where you, we may be at. It's like, can you imagine literally in this moment, like even for me right now, where it's like, I get a call from an advisor and they say, Todd, you know what, you got to get up and move to Canada right, right now in the next 48 hours and you're going to be there indefinitely. Yeah. That's like, holy shit, like what? Yeah. <laughs> like my kids, like, wait, hold on. And and, I, and again, this is under normal circumstances, but that's essentially what it's like. And then it's like, and then let's not forget the relationships they built within the organization or in that locker room. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into a new environment, new climate, new culture, mm-hmm. new country, potentially, or state. Like, And and I don't think we stop enough to be sensitive to that. On top of the fact that, hey Dan, you or I, I'm 40. I may be like I wouldn't want to be in that situation even at 40. But with my experiences, I'm suit. Hey, if if that's on my way, I could do that. But in my 20s, and then you know the the often the response is, oh these guys are getting paid millions of dollars. It's 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 all relative you know, uh, th- these guys, yes, it's a business. They're, they're getting well compensated, but they're, they're still people. Right. Yeah. And there's still the, the, I guess the psychology behind it again, uh, in terms of the relationships that they build. And then all of a sudden, uh, or, or that level of comfort they have. And then all of a sudden it's taken away from them and they have to, they don't have any choice. They have to get up and move.
1: Uh, insofar as you're able to share them, do you have any memorable free agency or trade deadline stories, maybe something you just will always remember or something unexpected that even caught you off guard?
0: Um, no, there was never anything that ever caught me off guard. Thank, thank goodness. And I say that confidently. Most of the trades I'm trying to think in, in, I think with the exception of one trade or, or a player being waived, and even then I knew about him being waived or traded, um, I was encouraging the trade of, of my client. I wanted them to be traded. And, and they knew I wanted them to be traded, and we're all in agreement. It was in their best interest to be moved. So that could be Baron Davis um, when he was in New Orleans, when, when it was the Hornets uh, to Golden State. Uh, it was Ryan Hollins when he was with Charlotte when they were the Bobcats to Dallas um, free agency. It was Austin Day when he was in Toronto to San Antonio and and right after that he wanted he, he won a championship that season. Um, you know Earl Watson from Denver to Seattle that eventually became Oklahoma City. Uh, I could go through all these scenarios, but there was never any that uh, caught me by surprise out of the blue. Uh, on a trade,
1: I think that answer kind of speaks to how much uh, the general public estimates, uh, underestimates how much agents and the the front offices are all working on this for so long before the news actually breaks. Where I think at the time uh, Kawhi Leonard to Toronto, let's say, felt a little bit random if you were first hearing it, but if you were around summer league, there was like rumblings of that for a few days. And so, because it's so sudden, I think to just the the casual fan or the general fans. Um, they discount how how much work and how much time it might take to actually make these these trades or these moves happen.
0: Yeah, Dan, you bring up a good point because for all of us that are in the industry, we're, we're I always say we're working behind the curtain, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, um, and even some of the, the the trades that I rattled off that that was during a different time, the news cycle, social media you know, wasn't as prevalent. Like there wasn't podcasts like we're doing now, or there wasn't <laughs> Woj Bombs yeah. on uh, ESPN. Like, and, and what happens, I give my, um, <laughs> I give my brother, my older brother shit for this. Cause he's a huge, uh, he's a huge Laker fan, but he'll, uh, he'll often try to tell me what's going on in the business. <laughs> and I just sit there and smirk like, come on. His name is Kirk. I'm like, come on, Kirk. Like, what are you talking about? Like I'm in the business. Trust me. I know what's really going on because of, uh, conversations or relationships, but, but that's the thing. It's great for the business of the NBA and the sport because it draws fans in, but oftentimes fans or people on the outside that, that aren't in it on a daily basis or in the trenches, like you and I are, they don't really, they don't really know, What's going on behind the curtain right. right, and um you know I tell you as a along that uh, note Dan it's like you know growing up an NBA fan, I'm still an NBA fan it's funny, but uh you know you know you I'm looking at the NBA as a kid like enamored, and then now you know being in the business, it's funny how my perspective or lens has changed because I'll be at a game, and obviously the game is going on, but Seeing what's going on on the sidelines, or knowing what's going on, you know, in the locker room or on the bench, it's a whole different lens that I'm analyzing or looking at the game or the business as, and and that's again going back to knowing what's going on behind the curtain.
1: Uh, this off season that's upcoming, there's still we don't even know when it's technically going to begin. It's it's a, we're in like an off season. It's just it's so bizarre. But the salary cap, I think we can all safely assume is going to be. Uh, fairly lower than expected, unless there's some miracle with what happens the rest of this year. And if you're dealing with uh, a free agent that maybe has an undefined market value to begin with, how are you prepping them for something like this? Is it encouraging shorter-term deals, or even in the middle of? I think there was a basically a bunch of players got squeezed. I remember in 2018 free agency, and Kevon Looney ended up sort of being one of them. He plays a year on a cheaper deal, and then was able to sign a a bigger contract uh last summer, how are you how are you preparing and then getting uh your clients through times of uncertainty like that where they may not be in, in line for the contract or windfall that perhaps they were initially expecting?
0: Again, it's all circumstantial. Um uh, Dan and um and really it's it's still it it's how how my pre- it's reassuring it's assuring my clients that everything is going to be fine if they mm-hmm. are a free agent. Because I do have confidence in the league office that once we get through this health crisis, that it, it, they're gonna try to get back to business as usual. And both the NBA and the PA, we know are are already discussing those transition rules if uh, you know, if free agency is pushed back or the, because the season is pushed back, uh, but even in a scenario where the season is canceled, we are it's fair to say that the the cap and luxury it, the the cap is going to be impacted because of the BRI and uh, as well as the luxury tax but i i could also see the nba like they did during the lockout year maybe uh w- you know with the agreement of the pa kind of kind of uh have an artificial salary cap that that allows uh, the players or teams to still operate at a certain level mm-hmm. that otherwise they wouldn't have if they're just factoring purely the BRI because of the circumstances right yeah. so maybe instead of the cap being at the you know 115 116 range because of the incident earlier this season that we were dealing with in China or with China uh, maybe they artificially put it a little bit lower, uh, where now players like Pascal or or other players that signed their, you know, max extensions right. last year, where it's a percentage of the cap, aren't as impacted as as heavily. But also for free agents this summer, um, they're not going to take as uh, as much of a loss. And there's a there's there's so much discussion going on dan it's not as easy as as me just even going to a client and just assuring them everything's going to be fine or looking at shorter term contracts or what their number is there's there's just a lot of implications on mba business as it relates to what we're discussing based on this covid-19 that we don't even know yet yeah. and we kind of have to we we just got to continue having the discussions let some time pass To see realistically where things are going to shake out, you know, whether we're going to have a season or whether the the season is going to be canceled. And then it's going to dictate, in my opinion, what type of free agent market we're going to look at, if it's going to be under the normal circumstances in terms of timetable, or if it's going to be later on in the year. And then really, what are we working with? Because Um, it's not just me to my client or what my client's market value is. It's what's the financial position of the team once that salary cap has been dictated.
1: I guess that's sort of uh, what you're talking about would almost be like a reverse salary cap smoothing where maybe you don't, uh, move the projection lower this year, or you only move it slightly lower, and then it just doesn't increase as much in the following summer, or something.
0: Correct, correct. And th- look, that and even that has major implications for the future, right? Yeah. For team, for players signing the supermax, right? Like a, like a Giannis potentially yeah. in Milwaukee, um, because the projections right now this year was supposed to be you know one sixteen, and next year it possibly one twenty five. So. To your point, if we were talking about smoothing and it's level or plateaued uh, because of the circumstances, um, that that's going to impact you know quite a few players uh, and teams moving forward.
1: My final question uh, from an agent's perspective: How do you feel about um, the idea of moving the the NBA season timeline, perhaps as a result of all this? Where would you know instead of October to June, it's Christmas to August, would you be in favor or against that? Is it, are you indifferent or is there something else that you'd rather see them change first, whether it's about the season itself and its structure or or the CBA or anything like that?
0: Well, it it just at its core and on the surface, Dan, because I'm a, I'm a person that I I just need to see the data, right. Before I even give some type of, hopefully some intelligent response to that, because that's not, something that's, that's it's simple to say, Hey, let's just move back the season two months. Um, it's almost like, uh, people talking about changing the logo, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not that easy, right? There's a lot, a lot that goes behind that. Um, as it relates to the season being moved back, I've, I've seen different things and there's a lot smarter people than I am that have really analyzed this and looked at, and looked at that. And, and one argument I hear is that, that, that's a valid argument is like not competing with the NFL season. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, because, uh, you know, the preseason as well as opening night is still during the football season. And by moving it back, you're, you're at the latter part or end of, uh, of an NFL season, which in some ways makes sense. um, But then it's also because we're getting into the summer, does that increase my, these are just questions I've had looking at it. Does it increase attendance at games because families are on summer break that could otherwise attend, you know? Um, Or does it decrease it because they're on vacations or have other activities that they want to do? How does that, how does that impact players? as it relates to that in natural internal clock that's been ticking since they've been kids. Right. And Mm -hmm. no one, at least for me, it was, it was, it was a major clock that was ticking when I was playing because I started young. It's like, you just know that you're starting practice preparation in fall to then get started towards late fall or winter. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that runs you through spring and in high school. Yeah, you have summer ball AAU, but it's just different, at least to me than what your regular season was. So how would that impact players in terms of all of a sudden now them, because at some point you may say you're going to have a longer off season, right? Mm -hmm. If you're going to put that into place, unless um, this was an opportunity for them to start that transition If they're starting the season late this year and then uh, push back to 2021 season, then, you know, based on the circumstances, they could do that. So I I guess in short, Dan, I'm just uh, I guess I'm just kind of thinking out loud talking in in terms of answering the question. I don't know. I, 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 I have to see what the data is in term and the reasoning behind why they would want to push it back or why it's being proposed, because if revenue is going to increase for the nba and logistically not much changes in terms of player schedules sure why not yeah um i know it's going to be an adjustment for um for current players um it's going to impact i know uh the calendar it, you know um outside of just the, the 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 games being moved or the playoffs logistically it's going to impact a lot of things as it relates to even the draft because of the NCAA season, or even if they remove one and done, what are they going to do with the draft? Right. Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, like even in these circumstances that we're faced with now, you know, the draft is after the season uh, ends and the NBA season ends. And it's also after the, uh, uh, the college season has ended, you know, two and a half months prior. So, you know teams draft players based on need right and right. then free agency starting essentially a week and a, half, a week week and a half after and they pretty much know what they're going to do and in free agency who they sign is sometimes dictated on the players they draft drafted or, or or trades they may have done in and around the draft so if you're pushing the season back 2 months does the draft then move and then how do you handle free agency, especially free agency with the draft if if, play, if if teams are drafting players coming out of college? So there's just a lot of uncertainty or a lot of questions. And to be honest with you, Dan, I haven't analyzed it or or really looked at, at um, uh, the reasoning behind it. But if it increases revenue and logistically it can make sense, then uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it yeah. at all.
1: I definitely think I fall on your camp. The, the thing that I thought a lot about is if you did push back the draft and free agency, that, those two events have become spectacles themselves, which, and maybe you feel differently as an agent just so ingrained into that process, but I enjoy just the frenetic energy that's there, and if you move that to September, October, then you're just competing with MLB playoffs, the NFL season, and perhaps that loses a little bit of the cachet that it's built up by happening in late June, early July.
0: Yeah, possibly. I, I, I mean, there's just, there's a, just it, for me, there's just a lot of uncertainty just behind it. I, I just think about, you know, on the agent side, if a, if the NCAA season, if a, if even with the one and done removed and te- a teams want to draft a player out of college, well, their season, if they're playing all the way to Final Four, it's over that first weekend of April. Mm-hmm. so now we're going April, May, June, July, August. Those yeah. players are gonna be not playing basketball for five months or just training for five months, or I, I always think about you know even disability policies they're they're out there in the open for almost half of a year before they're drafted like that's a lot of exposure, especially if you're the number one pick or a lottery pick. How do you address that like these are all the questions that I would be having because a lot could change in that amount of uh, that extended period of time. Um, so yeah, I I guess, uh, Dan, there's, uh, there's a lot, uh, that goes into that before, to be honest with you, I have an opinion, whether it's something that's, uh, that's uh, something that we should move forward with or something that we should just maintain and keep where it's at.
1: Well, Todd, I've kept you like 30 minutes longer than I thought I was going to, so I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and appreciate the conversation and and I thank you so much for for hopping on with me. I'm sure I'll be pestering you down the line at some point too.
0: <laughs> uh Dennis, it's it's a pleasure. This is this has been a great conversation uh, that was needed especially based on the circumstances. And like, uh, like I said, I'm here at uh, home working out of my home office with my family literally outside the door. But, you know, uh, I appreciate you having me on and, uh, and having the conversation. And, you know, obviously be safe where you're at. And let's see where we go from here.
1: Uh, and, yes, be safe to you and your family as well. Uh, thank you so thank much you. again and take care.
0: Yeah, you too. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran.